thing. Okay, so here we go. All righty, good evening, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to see you all. And I wanna first of all, thank all of you for coming on and for leaving your screens on because it always feels much better to talk to a crowd than to talk to a bunch of black squares on a Zoom that say names. So thank you for all of you uh, who have your cameras on. I also wanna say thank you to the amazing staff of Yeshua Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for enabling this uh, men's club to keep going on throughout all this, um, all this COVID. And you guys have been rock solid and they've been rock solid and keeping it all going. So big thank you to Partners Detroit and Yeshua Beth Yehuda. I also wanna thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. Yep, that's an app. It's also a website, torahanytime.com. It's an incredible resource with over 100,000 hours of incredible Torah wisdom. Go there, download, listen, fill your cerebrum with great Torah knowledge, okay? And then, of course, you can also find all of our stuff on partnersdetroit.org. And check this out, guys. We've gone big time. Our stuff is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts under the name Burnham on the Parsha. So you can look that up wherever you get your podcasts, Burnham on the Parsha. So this week's Torah portion is Parshas Mishpatim, as I've learned today. Now, this week's Torah portion is Parshas Mishpatim. And it actually is a, the word mishpatim means laws, and it's a massive compilation of many, many laws. In the last week's Torah portion, we, we saw the receiving of the Torah. And then in this week's Torah portion, it just goes into law after law after law after law after law after law. And I decided we would do something cool tonight. So we're going to, we're not going to cover like, we're going to cover a lot of themes all at once. And we're going to try to take simple laws and show how both there's a deeper meaning to them. There's all kinds of Kabbalistic and, and related meanings to them. And we're going to try to go through some of these ideas. Okay. And just as an example, we're going to show the following. In this week's Torah portion, we read about the Dalid Shomrim, the four, the four types of guardians. There are four ways that you could have my stuff in your possession legally. Number one, you borrowed it from me. You came to me and you said, hey, Rabbi, can I borrow your laptop? And I say, sure, but be really careful. My whole life is there and I don't back it up. I actually do back it up, but I didn't at one point in my life. And then I lost everything. And then I started backing it up. So I say, sure, you can borrow my laptop. Be very, very careful. My entire life is on it. Okay. That is way number one. So you got it because you are a show L. You are a borrower. Way number two. I come to you, I say, listen, man, I'm going out of town and uh, I'm afraid to leave my laptop anywhere. Do you mind if I leave my laptop at your house? And you say, sure, you can leave your laptop at my house. You're called now a Shomer Chinam, which means you are a free guardian. I, I, I'm not giving you money to watch it. I just asked you to do me a favor and you're watching it. So you are now a free guardian. The next way is if I say to you, hey, listen, I'm going out of town. And I've got this laptop. It's got my whole life on it. I really don't want to lose it. I don't want anything bad to happen to it. I'll give you 15 bucks. And all you got to do is just keep your laptop in my house, watch over it, right? Just make sure nothing happens to it. And all you're going to do is really just like put it on a shelf in your house, whatever it is. You're like, sure. All right, no problem. I'll give you 15 bucks. Now, by the way, the minute I did that, we are now, we've changed your status. You're no longer a Shomer Chinam. You're no longer a free guardian. You're now a paid guardian. And your liabilities, your legal liabilities actually go up dramatically. So if it is stolen from your house, right? Uh, or it was lost or you lost it somehow, when you were a free guardian, you're not liable to pay it back. 
But if you're a paid guardian and it got stolen from your house, then you didn't take proper care of it. If I was paying you to watch it, you are now liable to pay me back. Sometimes it's worth it to give somebody, you know, when you, if you have a lawyer, let's say you want to tell a lawyer about stuff that you did bad and to find out like, what's my liability here? Like, what's the deal? You always want to give the lawyer a dollar, right? Why do you want to give the lawyer a dollar? As soon as you pay him, he is now your lawyer and now you have client attorney privileges and he is not allowed to divulge anything you tell him. If you just go over to your shoulder in shoulders, the guy who's a lawyer and say, hey buddy, uh, can you give me some advice? If I stole from Jimmy John's and I think they're after me, whatever it is, he has no liability if he tells Jimmy John's, by the way, this guy's stealing from you. But if you pay him $1 and he's now your attorney, then he's no longer allowed to say over anything you say. So sometimes it's worth it to shell out that dollar and get that guy to get his client attorney privileges. The same thing over here, if I pay somebody to watch my stuff, he now has a higher level of liability. So sometimes it's worth it to make sure I pay the guy so that he should be more liable to watch what I have. Next. <laughs> Last level of liability. If you are a borrower, uh, a renter, you come to me and you say, Levy, look, I have a laptop, but it's broken. I sent it off to Dell. By the way, you never should have bought a Dell. That's your fault. You have to send it into the, to their fix-it center. Are you out of your mind? Yeah, you shouldn't have bought a Dell. But you bought a Dell and now you got to send it away to them to fix it. And they're going to send it back to you in two weeks from now after somebody in India looked it over and, and, and fixed it and rebooted it, whatever it is, right? So now you're out of a laptop for two weeks. You say, lady, can I borrow your laptop? You got a nice laptop. It's a good laptop. Can I buy, uh, rent your laptop? I'll pay you 30 bucks a week. And I say, sure, you know what? I don't need it right now. Anyway, you rent my laptop. So in terms of liability, the person with the least liability is the person who is the free guardian. He's doing you a favor. He's got zero, very, not, he's got, he doesn't have zero liability. Obviously if he takes your laptop and throws it on the floor and makes a music video, like an anarchist music video out of trashing your, 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 your laptop, um, he's liable. But if he, he has the least level of liability because he's got no benefit, you have all the benefit. Then you have a paid guardian who he's got benefit and you've got benefit. Right. That's true. I did not mean to disrespect Jeff Dell. Dell, the, Michael Dell, the computer guy. Right. Dell computers. I've got something against Dell computers. I had one when I was like in the 90s, late 90s, and it was really, really bad. And ever since then, like, I, like sometimes you just have this first initial experience with somebody or something. I'm just I've never done a Dell again. Isn't that amazing? By the way, the power, the power of first impressions. I had a bad experience with my first Dell. Never bought a Dell ever again. OK, now. And I'm not referring to Jeff Dell. That's right. OK, now. Um, so the person who's watching it for you for free, he has the least level of liability because he's doing you a favor and you're not, you're doing nothing for him. Then you have the renter and the, uh, guy who's the paid guardian. In those cases, each one of you gets benefit. The renter gives you money. So I have benefit, but he has benefit. He gets to use it. And the paid guardian, he doesn't get to use it, but he gets money and I get benefit that it's being watched. So there's like a mid range. And then you have the guy with the least the, the 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 least the most liability the most liability is the borrower the borrower he gets all the benefit i get zero benefit by lending you my laptop you have all the benefit therefore you have the most liability the law is that if you are a borrower no matter what happens to it you are liable even if it your you had it in your house and a tornado came out of nowhere and sucked it up and you're like, dude, what, what do you want me to do? I was watching it as carefully as I can, but a tornado came and sucked it up. 
You want to go get it? It's probably in Oz right now, right? I'm sorry, buddy. Your house got sucked up too. You're, if it was in your house, it would have been gone too. I said, it don't make no never mind. It don't make no never mind. I lent it to you. No matter what you have to give it back to me, you are 100% liable because guess what? All the benefit was to you. None of the benefit was to me. Therefore, you have the highest level of liability. And even if something totally out of your control happens to it, you are being 100% responsible. You were taking proper care of it, right? You know, you borrow my car and you park it, not even on the street. You park it in your driveway and a drunk driver comes tearing around the corner and smashes into it. It's not your fault. You still owe me the money because you had all the benefit. There is one exception. What's the exception? The exception is called in the Gemara, Baalov Emo. If at the time that it got ruined, I was with you. Okay, so I lent you my laptop and it's in your house. But I say, hey, I say, hey, Bob, can I come over? And you say, sure, you can come over. We come over, I'm hanging out with you in my house, in your house. And the laptop is right there in front of you. And while me and you are hanging out, a tornado comes and sucks up your entire house and the laptop since I was with you at the time that it happened. Or it's in your driveway and you and I are standing right in front of your house schmoozing. And while it's in your driveway, you had borrowed my car and you hadn't returned it yet. But me and you are sitting in the driveway watching, you know, watching the sunset or whatever it is. And a drunk driver comes tearing around the corner and smashes into the car. Since I'm with you, you're not liable because I can clearly see that there was no liability on you. Listen to this fascinating idea. Listen to this fascinating idea. Says the Reb Simcha Bonim Mipshischa, one of the great Hasidic rabbis. So the great Hasidic rabbis were experts at taking simple statements and putting a deeper spiritual meaning. So far, everything I said to you just makes sense. It's like simple legal sense, right? If you're doing me a big favor and you're getting no benefit out of it, you should have the least liability. If I'm doing you a big favor, I'm getting no benefit and you're getting all the benefit, you should have the most liability. It makes sense. If you're a legal, if you have a good legal mind, a logical mind, it makes sense. Says Reb Simcha Banim Mipshischa, one of the great Hasidic masters. He says, everybody in this world has his soul on loan from heaven. If you're alive, it means that you got your soul on loan from heaven, which means that you're responsible to everything that happens in this world. You can't say to you, oh, I, what could I do? My parents raised me wrong. My, my, my teacher, when I was bar mitzvah, they kicked me out of Hebrew school, right? How many guys have I met that have been kicked out of Hebrew school, right? But, but that's not a valid excuse. When you get to heaven, God's going to say, look, I lent you your soul. You got all the benefit. You got 90 years of life. I didn't get anything out of it. Therefore, you are fully responsible for your own life. And you don't even get to say a tinus onus. A tinus onus is like, again, like, like a tornado. If, if a person had borrowed a laptop and a tornado tore through the house and ripped it away, every other person would be not held liable because it wasn't their fault. What happened was a total you know, freak of nature accident. It's out of my control. Every other guardian would be not held responsible except for the borrower. The borrower is held, held responsible. Says Rav Simcha Baram of you got your soul on loan from heaven. And therefore, you are responsible for your life. And you have no excuses when you get up there. 
You can't say, yeah, but it's not my fault. My parents were this. My, my mom did this and my dad did this and my teacher told me this. And God's like, I don't care. You're a big boy. I lent you a soul. You had all the benefit. You should have figured it out. You should have spent more time studying, investigating, looking into life, trying to find the truth, searching for meaning. You shouldn't have settled for allowing your even valid excuses to excuse you. You know, I, I, I used to work a lot with children who were, um, I still do, with at-risk youth. Um, children who, had, you know, often you, you'd work with kids and these kids have been through all kinds of trauma, all kinds of trauma, seriously, like, like painful trauma, you know, abusive parents and, you know, whatever it was, whatever all the, you know, some of them were survivors of sexual abuse and who knows what. And they would tell me, you know, all the things that happened to them. And I would say to them, you know what? I, I, I can't even imagine. My heart absolutely goes out to you. And nobody can ever look at you and say, you're not okay. You're a bad guy for doing what you're doing. If you're now on the streets, you're doing drugs. Like, you're like, listen, I can't deal with life. I can't cope. I have so much pain, so much trauma. So now I'm just, you know, I'm just snorting away to just escape, right? I'm escaping through an injection in my arm. I'm escaping, just, just I'm just high 24 seven. And as soon as I wake up, I blaze and I'm just out of it. So like, I don't have to deal with the trauma. And, and, and people would say, look, I hear you, man. You've been through some serious trauma, but guess what? So it's so like, so what? So what's the other alternative? So you're gonna do nothing for the rest of your life because you've had trauma? Like you could, and if you do, maybe people won't even hold you accountable for it because they won't be able to because they haven't been through such trauma themselves. But is, is that what you want? You wanna go through the rest of your life with a good excuse and never make it because you had a good excuse? So God says, I'm, I'm gonna demand more of you. I lent you your soul. Sha'ul humimcha. Like, your soul is lent to you. You've got high levels of liability. Now, if that's the case, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be responsible for everything I've ever done wrong. Wait, there's one loop. There's one way to get out. There's one loophole is the word I was looking for. <laughs> Not a loop, a loophole. There's one loophole. What's the one loophole? If the owner is with you at the time that things go bad, you're not responsible. Says Rav Simcha Banami Pshischa. If you try your hardest to live your life with God, if you try to keep him with you at all times, if you keep him in your life and you're there with him and you're struggling, but you're there with God every bit of the way, then God says, I was with you the whole time. I can't hold you liable. You struggled and you fought and you were successful and then you failed and then you were successful and then you failed and then you failed again and you were with me the whole time. You were talking to me. You were crying to me. You were, you were, you were engaged with me the whole time. I was right there with you on the driveway when the drunk driver plowed into your car. I can't hold you responsible because you held me with you the whole time. So the, answer, the idea is, guys, we're not going to be perfect. We are going to be held liable because at the end of the day, our souls were given to us. So even if We've been through trauma, even though we've been through difficulties and challenges. At the end of the day, God's going to be like, you should have worked through them. I gave you an amazingly capable soul. But as long as we're working through them, as long as God is with us every bit of the way, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. That is idea number one. Okay. L'chaim. Now. Let me tell you a couple stories 
about what it means to feel the weight of your responsibility to someone else's property. The Torah says again, If a person will give his friend money or vessels, items, you know, whatever it might be, a laptop, a, a, you know, a candlesticks, a menorah, whatever it is, whatever I give you to watch, it's your job to watch them. Even if you're not getting paid at the end, it's something serious. It's someone else's money. There was two stories I want to tell you about the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim was a great sage who passed away in the early 30s. He was like probably, you know, definitely of the greatest who lived in the in the 20th century. He wrote extensively both on Jewish law as well as on the laws of Lashon Hara and the importance of humankind getting along better with each other. Now, there was a story where there were two people who lived in the town of Radin. And the town of Radin was where the Chavetz Chaim lived. And they were arguing, they had a court case. They were arguing over 30 rubles. They were arguing over 30 rubles and in the court, they were dealing with it. And they, they said, look, it's gonna take some time to, to figure out what the actual result of the court case is. So the two men decided they were gonna escrow it by the Chavetz Chaim, right? Now today, I don't see, do we have any lawyers on today? We have all doctors, any lawyers? No lawyers. All right, no lawyers. What kind of Jewish group is this over here? We've got plenty of doctors, no lawyers. Okay, so today we've got a lot of people who do escrow services, right? There are like actual companies that you can escrow the money, right? When you're dealing with a court case and there's a lawsuit over, I don't know, a million dollars of jewelry or whatever it is, that's valuable stuff. So there are, there are companies that will actually escrow it for you. They'll keep it and they'll watch over it, but they charge you a fee for it, of course. In those days, they didn't want to pay anybody to watch over their money. So they said, let's go bring it to the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim is a very trustworthy person. So the Chavetz Chaim, they came to the Chavetz Chaim's house. They knocked on his door. They said, Rabbi, we're having a dispute right now in the court. And we're disputing over this 30 rubles. Would you mind holding on to the 30 rubles until this case is adjudicated? And then we know what the, what the law is. Give me one second. Okay. So the Chavetz Chaim said, fine. All right, no problem. I'll watch it. And this is what happened for the next few uh, weeks. The court case was dragging on. They, and people weren't so careful. You know, it wasn't. And the Chavetz Chaim, every time he would see the guys, he'd be like, did you uh, work out the court case? And they, no, no, Rabbi, we didn't get it out. We didn't get to it yet. We didn't get to it yet. We'd see him two days later. Did you, uh, did you work out the court case? You know, I want to get your money back. He's like, no, Rabbi, we didn't work it out yet. Finally, the Rabbi saw them, two of them in Shul one day. And he came over to them. He said, I don't understand. He said, are you guys working on the court? Said, yeah, Rabbi, we're going to get to it. He says, I, I don't understand. How could you not be careful to finish this court case already? Do you understand that I can't use my bedroom during the day in my house because I have the slats covered? I, 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 I kept the money in my room and I won't even open up the shutters. The shutters have been shuttered the entire time because I'm afraid that if I leave the shutters open during the day, someone might climb into my house and steal your money. How come you're not, you asked me to watch it, it's a serious deal. I'm watching it for you, but finish the court case. I take it seriously, are you taking it seriously? And Seth Borman says the rabbi needs blockchain, exactly. When you need to escrow it, put it onto a smart contract and leave it on the blockchain. Very good, Seth, I like that, very good. Mm. Next story, there was once a fire. Uh, it was in the middle of the World War I. 
And in the olden times, you know, when there was a fire, they didn't have fire hydrants. You know, they would have each city would have its own fire brigade and they would create these lines going from people's houses back to the well and back and they'd be pulling water and passing it in buckets all across the line. But often houses, once a house started burning, a whole house, a whole block could go down. It was common in those days that when a fire took hold, a whole block could go down. Talk about the blockchain, right? So there was once a fire on the block of the Chavetz Chaim and they came running into the Chavetz Chaim's house and they said, Rabbi, Rabbi, you gotta, you gotta be prepared because there's a fire. And in those days, it was a standard thing. If there was a fire on your block, you grab the most valuable things in your house, whatever they were, your, your, your Shabbos candle, your silver candlesticks, maybe you had a handwritten Megillah, maybe you had some, some diamonds, some earrings, some this, or some jewelry, what, whatever it was. A lot of people actually, one of the first things they would grab was called their Sefer Yuchsin. People used to have books of lineage that would literally trace their family back to King David or to Aaron the high priest or whatever it is. And if they had to leave everything but one thing alone in their house, they would grab that book. That was like the most valuable possession for many, many families. So they come to the Chavetz Chaim, they're like, Rabbi, Rabbi, you got to evacuate the house, grab whatever's valuable. And the family starts running around to get stuff. And the Chavetz Chaim's sitting there and he's like, like, Rabbi, Rabbi, grab his stuff. He's like, and he's sitting there, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. And then suddenly his face calms down. He goes over to one of the doorways and there was a, you know, the doorways have like a frame, a door frame. On the top of the door frame, he pulled down like a little watch, like a time, like a cheap little watch. And then he, he puts it in his pocket and he starts rushing to get the rest of the stuff. He said, Rabbi, what's going on? It's a cheap Timex. He said, yeah, yeah, but you don't understand. One of the Bukharim in the yeshiva, one of the boys in the yeshiva had a watch. Most boys in the yeshiva couldn't afford a watch. The guy was embarrassed to be walking around with a watch. What a beautiful world, by the way. If everybody else can't afford a watch, I feel uncomfortable walking around with a watch. Now insert the words of Ferragamo belt, right? <laughs> insert the words, you know, Louis Vuitton, you know, shoes. Could you imagine if people would feel like I'm embarrassed to wear a Louis Vuitton shoes because like most people can't afford it. So it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to walk around that. It's going to make other people feel bad. This boy came to Yeshiva. He was from a wealthier family. He had a wristwatch. In those days, that was a, a luxury item. He gets to Yeshiva. Most of the boys don't have wristwatches. So he, he's embarrassed to wear it. So he goes to the Chavetz Chaim. He says, Rabbi, do you mind if I give you the wristwatch and I'll take it back from you when I go home for Pesach? I won't wear the wristwatch for the next six months. I don't need it. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And I don't want to make anybody, certainly don't want to make anybody else feel uncomfortable. So this man had given the wristwatch to the rabbi. The rabbi was busy. The whole house could burn down. And the rabbi's like, I don't care if all my valuables burn down, but someone gave me something to watch. When somebody gives you something to watch, you have somebody else's money in your hands. That ain't a joke. That's real deal. And that's how the Chavetz Chaim took it. That's idea number two. Idea number three. The Torah said the following interesting lesson. It's called the, it's, it, it's, um, it, it's the following lesson. It's called Arba Vachamisha, four and five. Four and five. What is four and five? Let's say somebody steals a cow or a sheep from somebody else. I don't know if you know this, but cattle rustling is a big, bad no-no. If you were out West, people would kill you for cattle rustling. As a matter of fact, I literally, we were in, uh, 
we were in Arizona one time on a trip and we went horseback riding. And of course, you know, me, you all know, I could talk to anybody for hours. So I'm talking to the Wrangler there. And he's one of these old time Western guys. And he's telling me, oh yeah, this guy, he's telling me this whole story about how this guy, he and this guy got into a fight. And this guy showed up in the middle of the night and cut a hole through, you know, and those in, in the, on the ranches, they all have like ranches and they got like barbed wire so the cows don't meander off. So he said this guy showed up and he cut the wires and he stole a bunch of his cattle. He had, he had like a cattle, um, you know, like a cattle carrier, like one of those like things that you, like a fifth wheel cattle carrier. And he made a bunch of the cows and he, you know, kind of shoved them and corralled them onto his van and drove off with that. And he's like, if I'd have seen him, I'd have killed him, man. That's one thing you legally can do here. He's like, tell me you can legally kill. I don't know. I, I'm not a lawyer. Remember, we don't even have any lawyers here. Well, there we go. We, the one week we need a lawyer at men's club. We, we can't find a single Jewish lawyer. But from what I understand, he claims that in certain states out West, it's still legal. The same way you could stand your ground and kill somebody if they invade your house in many states. You have the castle law or whatever it is. He claims that in Arizona or where maybe we were in Utah, remember Idaho, whatever it was, he says, if someone's stealing your cattle, you're allowed to shoot him cold. Like that's it. He's like, that guy, ever I see him again on my property, I'm shooting him. I'll ask questions later. All right. So the law, the Torah law is, let's say I steal somebody else's cattle or I steal his sheep. And not only do I steal it, if I steal, stole it and then I still have it on my property, okay, you come, you collect it. And you pay, you know, the, the general rule is if somebody steals things, he has to pay double, right? This, this is a fine. You stole, you pay back double, right? To, hopefully that's a preventative from people stealing. I, I don't know if you guys know what's going on right now in certain cities in America. In certain cities in America, for example, one that rhymes with boo, pork, kitty, right? <laughs> New York City has this thing called catch and, the no bail law, which basically means we don't, we don't want to impose bail on anybody because bail is unequitable because rich people can afford to pay, post bail, but poor people can't afford to post bail. And therefore it's racist or it's, it's wrong to create a bail system because then people end up getting stuck in jail. So we are going to release anybody without bail. And we're just going to tell them, please come back for your court case. Of course, if they're a murderer, they don't do that. Seth, you can look this up. You can Google this. You're like, Rabbi, I don't trust. This is true. This is true, right? I mean, there was a guy in New York City who was arrested for three felonies in two days. And each time they brought him down to the station, they, they booked him. And then they said, here's your, your uh, court date. Please make sure you come back to court on, on, on April 14th or whatever it is. Like, it's crazy. I was, the guy's like, oh yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. He goes out of court, commits another felony. They bring him back in to the place. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. They give him another one. And then they give him a night. He let him out. He, get, he got arrested three times in, in 48 hours for felonies, assault larceny, crazy stuff, right? So the Torah says, if you steal money, you have to pay back double. That's the normal standard punishment. It's called kefel. It's also in this week's Torah portion. And I, yeah. But if you steal somebody's cattle or somebody's sheep, and instead you don't just steal it, but you sell it or you slaughter it to eat it. And now it's gone forevermore. So then there's a special law that you've got to pay back. It's called four and five. Four and five means if it was a cow or a bull, you pay five times the value. So if it's a thousand dollar bull or a $5,000 cow, you got to pay $5,000 back. 
And if it was a sheep, you only pay four. So if it's a $500 sheep, you pay $2,000, not $2,500. Why? Can anybody think of why you pay only 4X for a sheep, but 5X for a bull or a cow? If anybody could think of what it was, please put it in the chat over there. Hmm. Jeff Dell suddenly goes quiet. Jeff Dell suddenly, your fingers turn to butter. Hmm. The sheep was Canadian. Okay, good. <laughs> That's a possibility. So the answer is something fascinating. When you steal a bull, okay, or a sheep, and I don't know this from experience. So what do you do? You want to get out of the guy's property as fast as possible because if he sees you on his property, he's going to shoot you. Exactly right. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna shoot you. So you want to do your you, know, you kind of maybe hit a little bit on the back. You like you make it run. And then the, I don't know if you guys saw it, by the way. There was a crazy video yesterday. A bunch of cows got loose in Indiana. They were running on the highway. Did anybody see that video? Yeah, you can you can Google it in, in your own time. But I don't know what happened yesterday. Like a herd of cows, like twenty or thirty cows, got loose on an Indiana highway, and they're just, they're booking down the highway, like 30 of them, they're running. They're, they're going full speed ahead. They're like, we are not going back in there. I don't care, I don't care. I'm not going back in there, no, no. Anyway, so when you steal a cow or a bull, you're like, you know, when you steal a sheep, okay? You wanna get out of there as fast as possible. You know what you do? You lift the sheep up and you throw him over your shoulder and you run with him. It's a little bit degrading. Right. You're like, oh, it's embarrassing, man. I'm like sitting here and this sheep in my ear. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. So listen to this. The Torah says, because the person who steals the sheep has this discomfort. So it's like a little bit like time served. He already had a little bit of pain and suffering. Therefore, he only has to pay 4X. Whereas the guy who stole the bull or the cow, or he just made the cow run in front of him, he didn't go through the indignity and embarrassment of carrying it over his shoulder while he's trying to run out of the property. He pays 5X. Now, think about this. If the Torah is so careful about a person's feelings, and whose feelings? We're talking about a thief. We were on vacation recently. And we were in the pool with my kids. And um, so, you know, we played games, you know, cops and robbers and this and that, whatever it is. <laughs> so, so like, you know, I would go, oh, this person, he's a thief, he's a thief. And I would start you know, coming at them and like swimming towards them or whatever it was. And uh, and my um, my littlest son, he's four years old. So he started saying it too. He, he, didn't understand, he didn't get the word was thief. He thought it was thief. He's like, oh, you're a thief. Okay, fine. And then he comes up with this. There were six people in the pool. He says, look, he's like, daddy, daddy, look. In the pool, there's two police, there's two thiefes, and there's two parents. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's precious. We made him say that same phrase over and over and over. Wait, wait, so what is there? There's two police and what else? Two thiefes, two thiefes. Okay, so if you're one of the thiefes and you're running with the sheep, it's like, it's embarrassing. So the Torah says you get less responsibility because you had to go through that pain and suffering. It's, a, it's indignity, a little bit of indignity, right? So if when a person goes through a little indignity, 
That's what happens. They get a lower sentence, so to speak. HaKadosh Baruch Hu thinks about that little bit of suffering and he, he gives you less, less payment. Think about if you save somebody from indignity. Think about on the other side. On the bad side, if while you were doing a bad act, you suffered some indignity schlepping the sheep on your shoulder, God says, I'm going to go easy on this guy because he already was embarrassed. Think about the other way. Think about if someone was being ashamed and embarrassed and made fun of, and you stop and you're like, guys, what are you doing? Stop us. Leave him alone. Whatever it is. Guys, I'm a good guy, right? And you save that guy. Sometimes someone's being beat up on, and just the fact that somebody else stuck up for the person, like it just, I feel like I'm being, everyone's just, everyone's just picking on me. Like, and one guy just says, hey guys, go easy. This guy's a good guy. What do you want from him? The amount of relief that you feel. Think about how much Hashem will reward you for that. If Hashem even rewards the thief is who's stealing the sheep, but he went through a little bit of indignity, so he rewards him. He doesn't have to pay back as much. Think about how much Hashem will reward you if you notice somebody else being made fun of. If you see somebody else who's embarrassed, he walks into show and he doesn't know where to sit and he's looking around and that uncomfortable, you know that, you ever seen that? When a guy comes to a synagogue he's not familiar with and he's kind of like standing there with like this deer in the headlights kind of look like, where do I go? Where, where should I sit? And you walk over to me, hey, how you doing? Come on over, let's go sit, come sit with me. Or a guy back in the day, remember this old thing where we used to have men's club on Thursday night, we would actually get together in someone's house and a new guy comes and nobody knows who he is. And you go over to him and say, hey, how you doing? My name, I'm Michael Gendelman. What's your name? Where are you from? Welcome. You save the guy that embarrassment, that uncomfortableness of being the new guy. Everyone else knows each other. And you go out of your way and you, you be nice to him. How incredible is that to God? Hashem notices every, every little indignity. And he feels the pain of every person feeling the pain of indignity. And if we can alleviate anyone's pain, Hashem will clearly love us. And by the way, it's so important. So important. You see somebody in any setting you're in. If you're at your, 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 your golf club and somebody's there and they're new and you can just see they look uncomfortable. Just go over and say, as we say, say Shalom Aleichem, say, how you doing? My name is Bob. What's your name? Where are you from? Oh, wow. Nice. Welcome to our club. You make somebody feel welcome and makes such a huge difference. By the way, they'll remember you forever with a positivity. I remember when I went to yeshiva. I, so I was in high school in a place called Merkazah Torah Bell Harbor. And then I went to yeshiva in a place called Shayashiv. And I remember the first morning I came in, I had like all my stuff, all my suitcases, <laughs> all like this, this patchwork of like suitcases. And remember, my parents lived in Israel. So like I basically was carrying with me pretty much all my worldly possessions. And I walk in the first day, I don't know where to put them. I'm like putting them like in the coat room. And then eventually I get assigned to a room and straight up, I can remember my first two roommates were, they weren't kind to me. They weren't, they were really, they were like, don't touch the phone. Okay. Don't touch my phone. You know, like I was like, I was like, okay, wow. Thank you. Nice to meet you too. One guy, one guy, I remember him so clearly. He met me. He was nice to me. He said, hey, we're going out tonight to catch some music. You want to come with me? And I will forever, forever remember that guy with appreciation and fondness because I was uncomfortable. I felt out of place and he just made me feel comfortable. So let's make sure we do that. Next idea. I want to read to you. And this will be our final idea for tonight. In this week's Torah portion, the Torah tells us 
that you shall not a convert, you shall not pain him, and you shall not pressure him. Because you too were strangers in the land of Egypt. So the Torah goes out of its way, and we're going to see multiple times to tell us that we have to treat people who convert to Judaism with incredible sensitivity. So listen to this story. The story took place about 800 years ago. But I'm going to read you this letter, and it's going to blow your mind still today in the year 2021. There was a story with a person who converted. Now, again, I want to point out, not all conversions are created equal, right? There are certain conversions where it's just like, yeah, you'll just come. You'll, you know, you'll come for a bunch of classes. You know, you'll, you'll, get, a, you'll, you'll, you'll get a certificate. But you don't got to change your life. Don't worry. It's like, you know, just, it's not really... It just Judaism is a culture. If Judaism is a culture, then the conversion has just become part of our culture. But Judaism is actually not a culture. It's like an entire way of life. And a legitimate, a legitimate conversion is an incredibly intensive process. You got to change everything you do. You got to start keeping Shabbos. You got to start keeping kosher. You got to start keeping all these laws. It's, it's, it's not easy. So the Torah is saying, if somebody goes through that whole process, you got to give them so much incredible respect. So there was a story, again, this goes back about 800 years, the story. And there was a ger tzedek, which means a righteous convert, who had converted and he was from the Arab nations. And one day he was sitting and he was arguing with his rap, with the rabbi in his town. He was arguing with the rabbi in his town about the status of Ishmaelites. And the argument was, are Ishmaelites considered of the Avodah Zarah, idol worshipers, or not. Now, sneak preview. They are not, right? Ishmaelites, Mohammedans, Islam, is not considered idol worship. They serve one God, Allah. And guess what? Allah is Hashem. It's the one God who created the heavens and earth. Now, granted, they believe that Muhammad was the final prophet and that all that Muhammad says is what's important. And we, we don't believe that. We believe that God gave the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai and to the entire Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And there's no other revelation, but they believe in Muhammad. But every, everyone agrees that, there's, that they, we both agree. The Arabs agree and the Jews agree. There's only one God. Call him Allah. Call him Adonai. Call him whatever you want. Call him Hashem. That's the one God who created heavens and earth. And there's no other forces. Now, with Christianity, it's a little bit more complicated because they believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's more complicated when it comes to Christianity. But this rabbi and this righteous convert were having a dispute about what is the status of Ishmaelites, of Arabs, of Muslims. This convert who came from the Muslim people was saying they don't serve idols. And this man's like, ah, oh, they serve idols. Of course, they're idol worshipers. All the, all the non-Jews are idol worshipers. And the convert's like, no, no, not all the worship, not all the non-Jews are idol worshipers. And they got into this disagreement, and this convert was holding his ground, and the rabbi was holding his ground. And I guess the rabbi thought, what does this guy know? Right? This guy just convert. What does he know? He, he doesn't know anything about Judaism, whatever. So finally the rabbi said, You know what? You answer a fool like a fool. Get, you know, they're idol worshippers and get out of my face. So he quoted this verse. It's actually a, a, a verse that says, You answer a fool with foolishness, according to his foolishness. So the rabbi really deeply embarrassed this, this convert, basically calling him out as a fool. So this convert wrote a letter to Nachmanides. Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Gurandi, 
who was one of the greatest Jewish commentators of the, of the, of, of the last millennia. Nachmanides, let's see his full name is Rav Moshe ben Nachman. Uh, he, let me give you the exact dates of his birth and his death. I happen to have that right here from a different class I gave today. Rav Moshe ben Nachman Gerandi. Uh, he's known by the name Ramban. He was born in 1194 and he passed away in 1270. So the story took place about 800 years ago. He, was, he spent most of his life in Spain. He was kicked out of Spain after successfully defending Judaism against an, op- an apostate who had left Judaism and had the ear of the, the Spanish king. And he had a big debate with, this, with the apostate. It was very public. And Nachmanides clearly won the debate against this Christian former Jew who was still a Jew, but called himself a Christian. And everyone understood that Nachmanides won the debate. The king even gave him a prize, like a purse for winning the debate and said, now you won, get out of my country. And he went to Israel. Anyway, listen, I'm going to read to you the letter that Nachmanides wrote back to this convert who felt justifiably deeply offended when this rabbi got angry at him because they were discussing a, a point of Jewish law and the rabbi called him a fool. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to translate it to English, but I'm going to read it to you word for word because we still have records of this letter. Writes back Nachmanides. I was very pained to hear that your word, that your rabbi spoke to you in such an inappropriate way and pained you and embarrassed you and called you a fool, he certainly did a terrible sin. And it is very appropriate that he should ask for forgiveness from you, even though he's a teacher and you're a student. And after he asks for forgiveness from you, he should sit and fast for numerous days and he should humble his heart and he should cry and beg for mercy from God, maybe God will forgive him. And maybe he was drunk at that time because he did not say that 36 times in the Torah, it says that you should be careful with the feelings of a convert, that we should treat him with respect and we shouldn't pain him with words. And even if you were speaking total insanity, He should have explained it to you in a nice and pleasant way and explained to you that you were making a mistake. However, how much more so that you were actually speaking the right halacha. You were right. Muslims are not considered idol worshipers. And he was the one making a mistake. And furthermore, I'm so surprised about him that he was sitting here talking about whether the Ishmaelites, whether the Muslims are considered idol worshipers or not. And what did he do? He got angry at you. He should have been suspicious about himself because the Talmud says, anybody who gets angry, it's as if he's serving an idol. And how much more so if his anger leads to the embarrassment of a righteous convert inappropriately. And continues Nachmanides, and know that the Torah obligates us tremendously in the way we treat a convert. Because the Torah commanded us to love and have reverence for our mother and father. And the Torah commands us to show respect to the Levim, the great teachers of Torah, and to show reverence for them. And doesn't we can, we can show reverence and respect to the Levim, to the rabbis, the Levim, et cetera, et cetera, but we don't have to love them. Didn't The Torah did not tell us that we have to love the Levite. However, when it comes to the ger, when it comes to the convert, 
The Torah commands us to love him as it says, you shall love the convert, which is exactly what Hashem says about himself. You shall love Hashem your God. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves the convert incredibly as it says, and Hashem loves the convert to give him bread and clothing. And that which he called you a, a, a fool, I'm, I'm in, in absolute shock how he could dare call you such a name like that. When somebody who left his religion, left the religion of his mother and his father and his, his culture and all of his money behind, because in those days when you converted to Judaism, they stripped you of everything, your title, your everything, and you connected yourself to the Jewish people, which is a people that has been hated and, 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 and persecuted for so many years. Obviously someone who had such generosity of spirit to come under the wing of the Shekhinah, of the Hashem's glory, and to, to dust himself with the dirt of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moshe, our teacher, and to live with us Jews in all of our suffering and pain. Who could say he was a fool? Chas v'shalom, God forbid that anybody should ever call him a fool. The opposite. You're the smartest of the smart. You are a student of Avraham, our forefather. Because he also, of course, converted. He became a believer in monotheism when everyone else was polytheistic. And your level is so high. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the good Lord, should bless you in this world. And he should give you a long life. And you should have incredible reward in this world and in the next world. And you should merit to see all the comforts that will come on the Jewish people. So concludes Nachman ben Moshe. What a letter. What a letter written 800 years ago. What beautiful concern. You could, you could hear in his words the delicateness, the concern, the care, the love, the compassion that Nachmanides is showing to this person, this beautiful, amazing, amazing convert. 36 times in the Torah, the Torah tells us to love and to respect and to care about the feelings of the ger. Anyway, that pretty much covers it for tonight. So here we had all these different laws. We didn't get to cover all of them. There's, I don't know exactly, there is a, there's a specific number, obviously, maybe 50, 60, 70 laws in this week's Torah portion. We only covered a few, but I really enjoyed doing that with you. Thank you so much for coming and have a wonderful Shabbos. And I will